everyone talks about the shift to an exponential world. So how do we do it? And it can't just be an extrapolation of what you're currently doing. So what are these strategic options and choices we face as a business? And what are the strategic realities we will have to cope with? And that's where the conversation starts normally. Hello and welcome to episode 83 of Chaos and Rocket Fuel, the Future of Work podcast. This is the podcast that looks at every aspect of work in the future. It's brought to you by Wanda and Pattern. And I'm Doug Folks, along with my co-host, Claire Haydar, who's the CEO at Wanda. Claire, how are you doing today? Doug, I'm about to pop out a human. <laughs> so I'm very pregnant, very, very pregnant. <laughs> And you, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm, uh, yeah, I am not pregnant, not even mildly <laughs> pregnant. Yeah, it's still cold over in South Africa. But I think what I'd like to do is get straight stuck into our guest uh, for the next three weeks, Anton Musgrave. He is a futurist with the company Future World. Tell me, why is Anton on the podcast? So there's a few reasons. First of all, um, Anton is a very good friend of both your and I's. And I think it's because, you know, we have so many casual conversations with Anton about this topic that we just absolutely know he's a fit for the podcast. But his work is just so relevant and so timely to this current business market that we're busy navigating where, you know, you have signs of a potential um, recession on the horizon. You have a lot of instability in the hiring market you know in general employee trends a lot of like shifting sand that's reshaping itself there being able to just take a step back and and look at this through the lens of somebody who has these conversations every single day with other businesses globally i think is something that our podcast audience can definitely benefit from this point in time because something that i've noticed is that most people are just fighting fires right now, which they absolutely should be doing. But I think amidst that firefighting, it is really important to just take that step back, which is what Anton is allowing us to do. And so, Claire, what are we talking to Anton about specifically in this first episode? So in this first segment, you know, we ask Anton to actually just lay the foundation for us so that, you know, listeners coming in can understand the context through which he works with companies as a futurist. Um, you know, and then, I mean, it's not just him. There's a whole company, you know, behind him in, in the form of Future World. So it's him himself, his partners and, and the whole team. And essentially what that involves is they work with executive teams to ask them the big, bold question. Without limitations, what would you need to be in, you know, 10, 20 years time in order to remain competitive? And when you look at that through the lens of, all the different trends that are currently shaping the future. You know, that that's the conversation. And so he lays that groundwork for us and shows us how to move from very much present mind into that future state mind. Excellent. I'm excited to, to chat to Anton. Anton, welcome. It is just so good to have you on the show with us today. You and I have been scheming about this podcast for a long time, so I'm very happy it's actually happening. <laughs> No, it's great to be here, Claire. Thank you. And you're right, it's been a long time in the oven. Yes, exactly. Doug, good to have you here as well with us today. I've missed our podcast recording sessions. Yes, uh, for once, 
on a podcast, the South Africans are outnumbering the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Anton, nice to chat to you. And yeah, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, good to be with you again, Doug. Anton, so, you know, our typical audience that listens into our podcast are C-level executives and, you know, sort of like two layers of management down from that C-level typically very large organizations. You know, we do have some on the smaller side, but they would typically be in and around, you know, a thousand employee companies. So we're dealing with all the typical challenges that you are really an expert in, in terms of, you know, globalization, like the cultural meshing of companies across those different geographies, all of these very real issues that we're seeing becoming more and more prominent today. And so what I'd like us to do is, we don't usually do this on a podcast, but I think it is very pertinent to the conversation that we're going to have today, that you just kick us off and actually just share a little bit with us who you are and what you do, because what you do is so relevant to the conversation today. And that's where all the meat of the conversation is actually going to come from. So over to you. Well, thanks very much for that, Claire. I mean, you know, the easy answer to the question is I'm Anton Musgrave, <laughs> a founder partner in Future World International, which is based out of Gibraltar, but operates uh, across the world and across all industries. And I, I guess I've been described, and it's quite amusing, actually, I've described myself as a futurist and a business strategist. And w when you're filling in immigration forms, I kind of just use futurist because it's short and sweet, and I hate filling in forms. Uh, and it never fails to alert the American immigration officer or the British immigration <laughs> officer who, who sees this and says, what on earth is that? <laughs> and, and of course, you know, given the politics of the day, one's got to be quite sensitive to how you answer that because they always ask, what's the future of our country? <laughs> but in essence, it's, it's really as, as a futurist, I spend my days and my passion is getting leaders to think differently beyond the obvious about what lies over the horizon. And, and of course, I would be an idiot if I had any confidence in what is coming over the horizon. Suffice to share that there are many things and they are coming at us at speed and we don't know what the answer is, but we need to think at least about what the answers might be. And so I can't predict the future, but, but I really love talking about what I call the waves of change. Uh, in fact, I call them unstoppable business tsunamis. Because very often, you know, as in a tsunami, they, they, a real tsunami, they're not obvious. They're small ripples on the landscape of business. But they don't stop. And they come towards us with increasing pace, increasing amplitude and force. And unless we prepare for them well in advance, when they break on the shores of the marketplace, they are incredibly disruptive. And if you're not ready, you end up as a matchstick. So that's what I do. I, I talk to leaders around the forces and the, that are shaping the future. What are the signals that the, that the future is sending us? Some of them are loud and some of them are, are very soft and, and very small. But what are those signals and how are they combining to tell us a different story about the marketplace and therefore you know, the relevance of business in the future? And this is not about trend spotting because, you know, if you're spotting a trend, it means it exists today, so it's not the future. These are those things that are not yet obvious, but they're actually all around us um, in some shape or form. We just need to pay attention. And, of course, the only reason I have a role as a futurist is because most leaders I find all around the world are so engrossed in the operations of business of today, the short-term focus, the quarterly results, the Wall Street demands, the analyst expectations, and so forth, 
that we don't spend enough time just pressing pause, lifting our heads and peering over the ramparts to see what's out there. And then the most fascinating is even if we did that, we don't make the time to say, well, what does that mean to us and our customers and even our children? <laughs> what does that mean for the conversations we are having with our kids about their subject choices, for example, and their career options? And so we just embedded in these conversations around the world of today and the immediate future. And I try and break that cycle. Anton, I'm going to jump in. I mean, it sounds incredibly interesting and almost like a, every day is a, a clean slate to start with. But can you be a bit more specific and maybe just give a couple of examples, obviously without giving away too much detail, but examples of the sort of work that you've done, say, more recently with companies? Well, I think the, the work really starts when someone in the, in the C-suite starts asking questions about, you know, how are we going to be relevant in the world of tomorrow? Or they say, how do we 3x our growth? Everyone talks about the shift to an exponential world. So how do we do it? And it can't just be an extrapolation of what you're currently doing, working a few hours longer and harder, because most people are working pretty much as hard as they can anyway. So what are these strategic options and choices we face as a business? And what are the strategic realities we will have to cope with? And that's where the conversation starts normally. And then what I found is, you know, many strategists start off by sort of analyzing the existing balance sheet of the business, the organogram and organizational structure, their business models, etc. They do, you know, awful things like SWOT analysis and competitor analysis and so forth. And really all of these exercises actually one by one imposes a mental constraint in what's potentially possible. Because they look at the balance sheet and it might not look so good and therefore they think, well, you know, anything that needs large capital expenditure, we can't afford. So take all of those ideas off the table and so on. And by the end of the day, they whittle their strategic options down to a very small set of incremental evolutionary improvements in what they're already doing. So what I found is very useful and very, very powerful is to break that mental pattern of thinking, if you like and disengage from the present. Say to the leadership team, let's not look at your business of today and, and all of those traditional lenses. Let's take a leap, you know, two or three step changes from now into a gray zone where even the most talented self-believer starts losing confidence in their own ability. And in that space, let's talk about what that world might look like. Uh, by the way, you have to have a view, but probably will be wrong, but you need to have a view as a leader. So let's explore what shapes those views, what shapes those options, and talk about what that marketplace of the future looks like. And immerse yourself in that world of, for argument's sake, my experience is seven to 10 years out is a good time frame to work in because most people will say, I really realize that I don't know the answers. And that's a great space. You know, uncertainty is the playing field of immense opportunity. And it's in that space that we then engage in a set of questions, let's say, you know, around defining what you might be in that world that really gives you goosebumps and excites you. And don't worry about the balance sheet or the chairman of the board or the capabilities or the tech stack, et cetera, et cetera. Let's get really excited about that, the impact of that business on your customers, on the marketplace, on society, and so forth. And then we'll work down a level of granularity and actually develop some detail around what that ideal business might be. But then the question is, not what should we do from a 2022 or a current day perspective. The question is, how did we get here? 
And so when you take the strategic thinking process and you launch the operational execution questions from the position of an ideal, exciting future that's given you goosebumps, and you say, how did we get here to this amazing outcome as a business? Then you're looking back to the present day and you're saying, right, well, in the first six months, obviously we did A, B, or C. In the next 12 months, we did X, Y, Z. And so you develop a high-level strategic roadmap from the future back. And that then overcomes these constraining lenses that leadership teams often impose on themselves, even unwittingly. You know, I mean, think about it. If you're a bank and you're talking about a disruptive fintech opportunity, in the boardroom, the first question every one of your execs is silently asking themselves, what does that disruptive fintech mean for my division, my retirement, my share options, my power base, my title, and so on. And so <laughs> it's very difficult to have that exciting conversation with folk in the room that might be disrupted or maybe don't understand the tech, etc. So at a practical level, that's where it starts for me, is deeply engaging conversations about possible amazing futures. And of course, understanding the big forces that are shaping that future marketplace or context in which business takes place. I want to weigh in here and Anton and I can speak to this specifically because you're an investor in our company, which is why we've been scheming about this podcast for so long. But you've actually taken our executive team through this thinking process. You know what I mean? Not the full three-day week-long yes. process, but we've done it in a compressed style. And I consider myself to be, you know, pretty able and capable of stepping out of the day to day and, you know, not getting lost in that. And I tend to be somebody who actually embraces a creative outlook on life. And you are. That's why I invested in the business. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But I can attest to what you've just outlined in terms of how difficult it really is to go through that process. And the point that I really want to make here is, which is what makes this even more challenging today than it would have been just five years ago, is that the change that's happening in the day-to-day -day ops of a business is so quick and fast in comparison to what it was just five years ago, exactly. that as an executive, it is so hard to pull yourself out of that day-to-day -day firefighting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's the day-to-day -day firefighting five years ago was way more operational. So, you know, you still had a layer in the company that was able to look at the strategic and then the team that was sort of on the ground dealing with the ops. But the firefighting that's happening today is really big strategic issues. It's major disruption that we're talking about. You know, I consider myself fortunate because you're one of our investors. You kind of like, you know, you're there on my shoulder constantly tapping me, you know, go, and you remind me. But a lot of executives don't have that luxury of having a futurist in their shareholding, you know, pool, sure. who's doing yeah. that for them, you know. And so I can completely relate to it. I mean, we're a tiny company, like we're not talking about like a major listed global organization, you know, that's just where the fires are just everywhere. And I think that's where, you know, executives really like, particularly those listening to this podcast with you, that's actually the first problem that they have to solve is actually being so deliberate about carving out that time to flip this, this mental thought process. Absolutely, Claire. And I, and I think that's, I mean, you've hit it, the nail on the head as, as usual. It's carving out the time. It's, it's creating the space 
to disengage from the now and carry out your fiduciary function, actually, as a leader yeah. to make sure that not only are you operating the present efficiently, effectively, profitably, etc., but also creating the future. You know, if you said to shareholders, what do you expect the leadership team to do? Operate the present or create the future? The answer is obviously both. Then you ask, well, how much time should you afford each of those two very different functions? And typically, when I ask the question, again, across industries around the world, the answer is never less than 60% creating the future. And only 40% at senior exec level should be operating the present. And then, of course, you send the AI into the Outlook Diaries and you do the analytics and it's a scary picture, right? But what makes it even more scary is, you know, I talk about the old world and the new world. In the old world, from a strategic or a strategy point of view, fast followership was very compelling and very, you know, might have been a good strategy. But the problem with the new world is the speed with which things are, opportunities are arising or disruptions are arriving is so quick that fast followership might cost you the race. So you have to be very close to the forefront of thinking. So your foresight has to be much, much better than ever before. And we're also living in a world where most executive teams have access to all of the data, all of the tech, all of the disruption, all of the sort of debates that are happening. So what differentiates the winners from the rest of the pack is the quality of strategic thinking applied in the boardroom around all of this knowledge that everyone has access to. And then you look at capital markets. So where are global investors putting their money? And it's fascinating when you analyze, you know, listed companies on the stock exchanges of the world, there's been a massive turnaround between the value of organizations represented by hard, tangible assets, stock in trade, buildings, you know, plant, et cetera, et cetera, and IP. And in the last 10 years, there's been a huge swing away from fixed assets as a core underpin of value. And it's now all about IP, ideas, brands, uh, relationships, ecosystems, and so forth. And that's had an interesting swing because when you look at the expectation premium that investors pay for listed companies at least, I mean, Tesla, of course, has to be the classic, right? The intrinsic value, the discounted cash flow value of Tesla is 20% of the actual market value. So investors are giving you this massive premium in your share price because they believe that you can uh, reinvent and stay relevant in a rapidly changing marketplace. Conversely, companies are penalized where investors don't think leaders can do that. And their, their, their market cap is trading at a discount to the net present value, if you like, or the intrinsic value. And then you look at the longevity of successful companies on the stock exchanges. In the 1960s, the S&P 500, if you were in that category, you were there for an average 34 years. The number now shrunk to 12 years. Wow. So the urgency mm. to reimagine and innovate and stay relevant is escalating all the time. And I don't see that disappearing. Yeah, it's actually going to shorten. That 12 years is going to shrink even further. It's going to shorten. And again, I come back to words I chose earlier. The fiduciary duty of an executive is to stay relevant and create this business of tomorrow whilst you are operating the business of today. And that duality is, is very challenging. But if you don't carve out the time, as you said, it's almost impossible. 
It's interesting. The Doug, this is my last comment, and then I'm going to hand back over to you. The, uh, the sixty, <laughs> the sixty forty <laughs> principle that you shared there, Anton, reminds me of what my English teacher in high school drilled into my head, and I've actually shared this with our team like multiple times over the years. Is she said, if you want to consistently get an A plus plus on every essay that you write and submit. Spend 40 minutes of the 60-minute hour planning that essay and spend 20 minutes writing it. And yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? And it's so counterintuitive because you would think that the more time you spend actually writing the essay is what's going to get you the A++. And I actually tested her one day. I was like, I want to see if this really works. And I spent more time writing and I can't remember what I got, but it certainly was not an A. It was the worst essay I ever wrote. You know what I mean? <laughs> and every single time I applied that rule, I got my A++ on the, on the essay. You know, and I've, it's one of those lessons from high school that I've carried into business because it's applicable to almost everything. You know what I mean? Yes, spend that absolutely. amount of time on strategy, spend that amount of time on preparing for customers, all of those type of things, and the reward yields itself. Well, I mean, as you know, I used to be a lawyer in my previous life. And when you're preparing for a trial or a contract negotiation, you know, the time spent in the court is inversely proportional to the hours spent preparing, at least if you want to win the case. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that's it. You know, it's, um, it's startling. Often I'm asked to talk about the customer of the future. And companies pay vast sums of money to consultants to go and research who is the customer of the future, how will they behave, what will they value, and all of those typical questions. And my answer often is, and it's quite flippant, but it's, it's, it's quite sincere. It says, if you've got kids between the ages of 8 and 16 around the supper table tonight, pay attention as a business person, not as a mother or a father. Right? Because it's normally about passing me the salt and, you know, don't put your elbows on the table kind of thing. Yeah. Instead of just listening to what they're actually talking about and then ask yourself the question, ideally with your own executive team the next morning, what does this behavior of my teenager mean for the future of our customer? By the way, also the future of our employees. What does that mean? And that connection about so what is very seldom made. As I said, you know, we all read about the latest robots and AI and wonderful things. But how often do we just sit and explore what could that mean? Where's the opportunity? Where's the, where's the challenge? Where's the disruption? How do we leverage it? How do we avoid it? And so forth. You know. Anton, I'm going to jump in. Just my comment really around what you're saying. Claire, you said that because of what has happened, it makes it more difficult to disconnect from the current. I would have thought, Anton, in a situation when you're trying to get the C-suite or the executives to disconnect from what's happening at the moment just pointing out what's happened over the last three years would actually make it even easier because that was never on the horizon. Doug, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, and, and even beyond the obvious things of the last three years, you know, when you trigger a conversation about, you know, what's the future of democracy, for example, is it fit for purpose in a world that's behaving like a huge, big interconnected system? And people are having suboptimal educations because schools are not teaching people who are becoming adults and leaders, of course, to think critically as a systems thinker. And then, of course, we're piling them with all this fake news and we're expecting them to make contributions to increasingly complex questions as voters in democracy. So that's a big debate, but it has fascinating consequences for the high level. Then you take it one step lower and you say, you know, in business, 
in the old days, we used to say companies are there for shareholder profit. Thank heavens we've moved away from shareholder now, and it talks about stakeholder. Uh, and Jamie Dimon and his group of 180 CEOs signed a few years ago that manifesto. But you then start talking about what well, is capitalism fit for purpose? And you realize it has some fundamental shortcomings. And of course, the events of the last three years have highlighted many of these. Now, we know what other systems have not worked. So how do we tweak capitalism? And, and it's relevant for companies, even in the short term, because the question then is, okay, so if companies are shifting to stakeholder value in all of its dimensions, tell me how you measure your success as a business. And the answers I get are typically, well, it's so much profit and it's so much sales and it's so many employees and it's so, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all are quantitative, but a lot of it needs to be qualitative. And so when you start thinking about how we're actually going to measure our success in the future, five, 10 years out from now, in a world that's shifting, then you start realizing you need to put different processes in place, look at doing different things to have that new impact in the world around you. And that then starts having very immediate consequences in your capital allocation decisions, your structure of your organization, your business model, and so forth. And that brings us to the end of the first part of our conversation with futurist Anton Musgrave. To see where this conversation goes and understand why more than ever his work is relevant to today's workplace, make sure to catch the next two parts of this conversation on Spotify, Google or Apple Podcasts, or on Wonder's website, wndyr.com. From Claire and myself, we'll see you soon.